Good morning again, everybody. Good see everybody out this morning. Let's see here. Children's Church today is Donna and Glenn, so 12 and under, want to go over for that. Dismissed to go to Children's Church. Well, they two for a second. All right, while they're heading over, if you want to go ahead and mark in your hymnals, 183. Whiter than snow. We'll use that as our hymn of invitation this morning. And certainly good to, to see everybody out. If you're logging into Facebook or onto uh, YouTube later on today, we welcome you. If you're visiting, we want to invite all of you to be with us anytime that you can. And uh, we'd be happy to have you as part of our family. And, and hopefully uh, you, you feel like uh, part of that family as well. Big weekend uh, so far if you, if you watch basketball, isn't it? Uh, two number ones and a number two have fallen already, and I think that's the, the most top seeds that have ever left out of the tournament and, uh, uh, this early, and so certainly there's a lot of good basketball uh, going on. That's one thing that March, the anticipation of March brings to us, along with the anticipation of the day that we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, and that's coming quicker and quicker each week as we gather. Uh, the resurrection, one thing you may or may not realize is the singular, almost the singular thing that separates Christianity from most other religions. Because they most all have a Messiah figure or a Savior type figure or someone that guides them, but none of them have a resurrection story. None of them have a resurrected Savior. And that's why it is from the one true God. This holiday uh, brings to mind many different things, doesn't it, when we think about uh, what we do around the resurrection. Children, games, flowers, meals, dresses, little suits and bow ties. And the list could go on and on and on, but the single image that deals with the resurrection is the cross and of course the empty tomb. Now I did, I wanted to mention and hopefully if you didn't get them on the way in, I invite you to get one on the way out. Uh, I have the little palm leaf crosses again this year. I've got enough for everybody to take one. If you've got, if you've got yours from last year, take one and give it to a friend and explain to them the importance of that. And I hope that everybody will take one certainly. Uh, you're invited to do so. So they're back there on the table in the foyer. Because the, the symbol that I want to talk about this morning is the cross, in fact. Probably one of the most recognizable symbols that we will ever see for us here in America. It's a symbol that has led men into war. It's a symbol that has been burned uh, as a sign of hate. It was an instrument of death for some. But for the Christian, it's a symbol of victory. Well, it has a lot of different meanings. And I think it would be, probably be safe if I asked each of you here, what, what does the, the sign or the cross mean to you? And, and most would, would say, though I'd get a variety of answers, most of them would say something about being a symbol of Christ and God's love for us and a uh, symbol of salvation. And I believe that's fair and reasonable to expect. But I wonder if we realize that the cross speaks so much more to us. The cross has 
so many more messages that it speaks beyond its uh, use by the Romans as an instrument of death. Beyond the fact that we wear it as a, as a uh, piece of jewelry, as a reminder of the, the price that was paid for salvation. And that's what I want to look at this morning as we continue our uh, resurrection series coming up as we lead up to that uh, glorious morning. Uh, we, I want to look at the cross, and I want to look at how the cross speaks. And when we look at it, hopefully by the end of this sermon, uh, it will mean more to us. And, and that's what my hope is for all of us, that each, each resurrection Sunday that we get to celebrate, it has a deeper meaning to us. Because someday, just as Gary had mentioned uh, whenever he was reading opening scripture this morning, Christ will return. He will not return as someone that has been defeated temporarily by death. He will return as a victor. He will return with his armies to claim his bride. And that's what we have to look forward to is that Christ will return victorious. So as we look at the cross this morning, I want to point out to us about the guilt that it speaks of and God's righteousness and our helplessness and God's great power to save along with the great power of love, of God's love and also the need for our obedience. So if you would turn with me over to Paul's book of Romans as he wrote to the church at Rome. And we'll look at that this morning as he uses his abilities to relay this message to the church at Rome. And we'll begin with the fact that the cross speaks of guilt. Beginning in Romans chapter 3 verses 9 and 10, Paul writes and says this, what then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jew and Gentile, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now, over the course of my tenure as a minister, I've had many conversations with many different people, some believers and, and some not believers. Most will acknowledge that they believe in a God. Many who have a problem with the Christian religion, with following being a follower of Christ, the, one of the most common things is that how that people could, uh, that have committed what we call, what society calls uh, these egregious sins, and they are bad, murder, child molestation, rape, those types of things, how that they can be uh, forgiven and have a place in heaven with someone that has lived faithful and a good life all throughout their life. And by man's view, that's a, that's a hard thing to reconcile, isn't it, when we think about that? Because we like to categorize and, and put a, a, a level on sin. But that's something that man has done that God did not do as far as sin goes. In God's eyes, sin is simply sin. And we have to realize and try to begin to look at people and sin through God's eyes. Because as Paul says here, 
We're all sinners. We've all fallen short. None of us really measure up. But the thing that changes that, and the thing that the communion we take each Sunday morning reminds us of is that that sin is covered by the blood of the Savior, the blood of Jesus Christ. If you look over in verse 23, Paul continues as he talks to the church at Rome. He says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's just a reminder to us that we have all fallen short. And that's what the, cry, the, the cross, when we look at that cross, reminds us of. We've all seen movies where someone was on trial and, and the judge slams the gavel down and, and says guilty. We can imagine each time that we look at the cross, it pronounces guilt and the demand for justice because of us, because of our actions. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says in part, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And we do not have the privilege or the authority to pronounce our own righteousness. But sometimes we will freely pronounce others' guilt, won't we? We will even condemn others. But in fact, all that we have the power to do is to acknowledge our own guilt. And that's what the cross should lead us to do, is to acknowledge that guilt. Cross also speaks about God's righteousness. God's righteousness. Looking at uh, verse 23 again and through 26 this time there in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be the propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. I declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. We recall about what God told Adam and the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, don't we? That if they eat of it, they would surely die. And since that disobedience, man has been plagued through that introduction of sin throughout. And the penalty has been the same. Disobedience to God will bring about a spiritual death. And if God is to be just, he could not spare not even one sinner. And we look all the way back to Adam and Eve and we see that they were not spared. They were removed from the place that God had originally intended for them to be, which was the garden where they would fellowship with him. So even the first man and first woman that God created, when they came into sin, they were also punished for that sin. That's the sign of a righteous God. That's the sign of a God that must be called holy. He could not spare one sinner without sparing every sinner. And that's why he made a way for us to be obedient. 
which is why God is just. And the justifier, as Paul wrote. And when Jesus went upon that cross, we know that he took our sin upon himself. In that way, God made a way to save those of us who are willing to obey and live for him. Free from guilt or sin is what that word righteousness means. You ever think about that? Righteousness, God's righteousness. Who else but God and Christ themselves can say that they are free from guilt or sin? Certainly not me. I'm not free from that. I work every day to improve myself, to be righteous, to be more righteous, to, to strive toward that mark as Paul wrote. But I'm human and I sin. And when I recognize that and I realize that, as a Christian, I repent and I turn away from that activity or that thought or that word looking to God to strengthen me to not repeat it. God never had that problem. Jesus never had that problem. He had nothing to repent of or repent from. And just as Paul wrote, if we recall, and I'll paraphrase this, I know to do good and I don't. And I know to... To not do bad, but yet I do. And that's the plight of man. It is only he who is without sin that is able to prescribe the way of those of us who do sin that we may be seen righteous. He alone, God alone, claims the way for repayment of our sin. And Jesus, as we know, is that only acceptable sacrifice. The cross is a reminder of God's righteousness as well. The cross also speaks about my helplessness, man's helplessness, in order to overcome this in verse 20 again. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So not only does it show our guilt, not only does it show God's righteousness, but it shows just how helpless I am to change my state. I can't be good enough. I can't go out and do enough good deeds for people. I can't be a good enough neighbor to lend a hand, to do little chores, to help someone who's down, to provide food. All the charity is Paul. Uh, if I have the most charitable acts made to known to man but yet I have not love and that's talking about God's love it's worthless I'm helpless on my own even at my best efforts and it's a terrible gamble to think if we just live a good life and treat people well that, that God's going to accept us we all know good people don't we we all know good people that are, are, that are fine neighbors, fine maybe family members. Never been in the, any kind of trouble, never done anything really wrong. Always willing to help others. But yet they do not know Christ as their Savior. And they are lost. And that shows us how helpless that we are, even in the eyes of man, to judge someone a good person, a good neighbor a good friend to overcome sin those that are reading talks about the law here those that are doing the reading 
uh, program that started at the first of the year. What have we been looking at all throughout the past month, really, not month, three weeks? It talks about the law. And what have you learned? I hope we've learned. It identifies what sin is to us. It defines sin. The things that we as our Christians cannot engage in. And that's what he's talking about. The law itself was not made weak, or is not weak. The flesh is weak in following it. Our inability, our helplessness, if you will. The law still shows us what sin is today. Because God is the same yesterday, right? Today and forever into the future. God has not changed. God's view of what is sin is still sin. The thing that has changed is the repayment for that sin. And the cross reminds us of that. And the cross also shows us that I am helpless to overcome the penalty of sin on my own. So the only hope that I have is to obey God. And that's the true description of grace. God's grace. Given though we don't deserve it, available to all, even to those who reject it, it's available. Which brings us to point number four. Talks about God's power to save. God's power to save. Over in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, if you will. There is therefore now no condemnation to those which are in Christ Jesus. And listen to what he says here next. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit is the life that Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who what? Walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And that's what the separation is. We must separate ourselves from the flesh, which is attached to this world, the things that man calls valuable. But we must walk after the Spirit, which God calls valuable. Remember, God wants us to worship in truth and in what? Spirit. Or in spirit and truth, actually, got reversed there. So that's what we must walk after. We cannot rely upon the flesh. We cannot rely upon even saying that I haven't done these things. We must walk after God and his love. And this shows us, this one little section of scripture, these four verses, shows us that there is a way out. There is a way that God has provided his own son, Jesus Christ. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 16... And a very familiar, popular scripture. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, or the Gentile, or to you and me. Those outside of that Mosaic covenant, the Jewish, the Hebrew, 
which includes the rest of the world. And that's what it is. It pronounces God's power to save. The gospel, which tells about Christ, which tells about which what we will be separated. The empty tomb, the trial, the arrest, the crucifixion, the burial, the ladies going back on the third day to, to tend to the body, finding that empty tomb, making that first proclamation that he is risen, encountering a risen Lord and Savior. That's God's power to save, and that's what the cross should remind us of each and every time we look upon it. And we think about that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it does have the power to lead men and women to God's salvation. Again, just like the courtroom example, we know that the law has the power to convict, but also those in charge in the law have the power to pardon. Do it all the time. People that are guilty, maybe a first offender, or maybe they're a young offender, they don't receive the maximum penalty for the law. Maybe they receive something like a, a probationary period or a community service, some type of punishment, but not certainly the maximum punishment. There is no midway. There is no mid-ground in God's view. Punishment is all or none. And the only way that we have no punishment is because of the cross, because of what Christ did in the same way, God is that author of that righteousness. He's the author of pardon. He has the power to save. And the cross proves that like no other. Just like I said last week, and you may remember, hell was prepared for the devil and his. It was never intended for man. And Christ on the cross is proof of that. If God intended people to go to hell, he would never send Christ here to save their souls. If they would follow and listen and obey. It takes great love to do that. And that's our next point. About God's great love. Over in chapter 5, Paul writes to the church at Rome in verses 6 through 8. He says these words. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In spite of ourselves, in spite of ourselves trying to do good but yet doing bad, in spite of ourselves not having a relationship with God, he still loved us so much, he sent Christ to die for us. Now we of this generation can understand that. We never seen with our eyes Christ walk upon the earth. We never encountered a conversation or a meal or an interaction with an apostle that witnessed Christ walking upon the earth. We only know what the scriptures tells us about that and we have faith that it is true. And we know that God's love is carried throughout because of that faith. And we know that because of that faith 
God loves us, but yet people sometimes wonder, does God really love me? And the cross answers that question. And we ourselves as Christians should be witnesses to answer or to validate that answer of yes, God loves you. Think about the cross. Think about what God did so that we may have a way, a path of salvation through the blood, the burial, the resurrection of the body of Christ, walking to live. That's how we know that God loves us. How better could he have shown it? What else could he have done to show his love toward the world? His only begotten son on the cross. His one and only son given to die. A horrible death on the cross. How can we dare not look at the cross and, and know that we don't have value? Because that cost great, greatly. That the son of God, the Lord and master of this universe, sent his son to die in my place. I know he loves me. No greater love has a man but this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And we think about John 3.16, which is so popular. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for all of us that we might have the hope of salvation. Which points to our last point this morning. Is that the cross speaks about our need for obedience. Looking in chapter 6, verses 16 through 18 this time. Know ye not <clears throat> that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you, being made, then made free from sin, ye because you became the servants of righteousness. Think about that, what he said. We became as who we obey. Our hearts turned to be more like whom we obey. And that's something that we need to examine ourselves. I don't care how long, uh, if you're not a Christian, if you're a new Christian, if you've been a Christian for 20 years, if you've been a Christian for 50, 60 plus years, we need to always check, remember what the scripture says, to guard our heart, there's a reason. We need to check within our hearts to see who we obey. Because who we obey is who we will be like. We've all heard this, the old saying, you are what you eat, right? Well, you are who you obey. If you obey flesh, if you obey the world, guess what you're going to look like? Flesh in the world. If we obey and seek after God and, and use Christ as our example, and we try our best to obey that, then what are we going to look more like? We're going to look more like Jesus. We're going we're gonna to take on those attributes that Christ displayed to us. If we obey righteousness, we will become righteous. 
And we're all ultimately talking about conversion. We will be converted, changing for a different function. And many times people think that God's grace eliminates obedience. It's really quite the opposite. God's grace demands that we obey him. It demands that we take on that new creation. When we bury the old man in baptism and we're raised in that creation, it demands that we change. And it demands that obedience. His mercy demands that we change from the old and put on the new. Jesus was obedient all the way unto death, wasn't he? We know that and we'll study that in the, in the coming sermons uh, as we draw closer to Resurrection Day. Jesus was obedient and he knew what was coming. But yet he was steadfast in his commitment to the Father's plan. So hopefully when we look at the cross, we will view it a little differently. And when we look at the cross, we will be reminded of what it says to us. Even the question that it asks each of us, have you obeyed God? Now, for those that are without Christ as their Savior, that's asking you, have you accepted Christ as your Savior? Have you heard? Have you believed? Have you confessed Christ as your Savior and repented of your sin? Have you been baptized to receive the forgiveness of those sins? and the gift of the Holy Spirit? Have you been raised that new creation, walking faithful, serving obediently until Christ returns? Now for us as Christians, have we obeyed God? Have we allowed the Spirit to change us and to help us grow and mature year by year by year to come closer to righteousness and further away, further away from the flesh? Not saying we're perfect, but we're, as Paul said, striving to reach that mark. Paul said he never had achieved it at the end of his life, but he still reached out for it. And that's our call as well, is we may never, we will never, this side of heaven, achieve perfection, but we have to strive for perfection each and every day that we're granted to live. And that's the question it asks us about have we obeyed. So as we sing this hymn of invitation this morning, Wider Than Snow, let us examine ourselves. Have I obeyed the gospel? The cross demands that we do. And if you have a decision to make, if you want to obey God today, I encourage you to come and as we stand and sing the first and the fourth verse of this hymn, Wider Than Snow, 183.